Those are some serious words we all just sang. Jesus, you are all to us. How often is Jesus not all to us? I think it happens more often than we'd like to admit to, but it's true, right? Those two songs fit well together. Turn your eyes all to us. Generally, you turn your eyes to something that grabs your attention, that you want to see, or something that you desire. And if Jesus is truly all to us, like we just sang, our eyes will consistently be turning to him. And this world is full of things that are good. They are good things. But my prayer for myself and for you is that they may not become God things. That we desire them more than Christ. And so, what a wonderful song, wonderful reminder as we come to his word this morning that Jesus truly would be all to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminders and the encouragement and the challenge. How often I turn my eyes to things that, though they are good, are not eternal. Though they are pleasing and designed by you, they are not meant to be worshipped. Lord, I take the thing that is to remind me of your goodness and I make it God. Lord, help me to keep the proper perspective. Help us as a body to consistently turn our eyes to Christ day in, day out, that his name would be the glory of the church, both corporately and individually, that Christ would be all to us. I pray in his name. Amen. Mark chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17 this morning. It's page 848 in the Pew Bible, page 848 in the Pew Bible, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. But truly, teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. We're halfway through September, and October's rolling around, and Carrie was at Sam's Club the other day, and she sent me a picture, and it was Christmas decorations. Of course, Sam's Club and those big warehouses, they're, they're like three months ahead, right? Um, they, they bypass Halloween candy and Thanksgiving and boom, they're at Christmas. And, uh, what is the joke that you probably heard about the holiday dinner table, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, you gather with your family, you can talk about anything except what two things, Re- politics and religion. Guess what? That's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. <laughs> Politics and religion, right? That joke, you can talk about anything except politics and religion. And we all probably have that crazy uncle or cousin. You might be that crazy uncle or cousin. I don't know. Uh, Who always is looking to talk about the latest 
uh, event or happening in the political realm or always have these strange religious ideas or whatever it may be. But we don't like to talk about these things because people become very passionate and opinionated about them. And often a lot of strife can occur. And that's, that's exactly what, what the religious leaders wanted to happen this, uh, in this account here in Mark's gospel. Reminder that Jesus is in the temple. This is the week leading up to the Passover. And really, it's the, the week leading up to Jesus' death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection. But during this week, Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders. When I say religious leaders, I mean the Sanhedrin, which is a group of about 70 Jewish men who are the, in a sense, their ruling governing body. It also includes other various Pharisees and scribes, teachers of the law. These were the upper crust. These were the religious, uh, religious authority in the lives of the Jews. And these were the men who had authority and power and, and they wanted to keep it their way, the way that they wanted to do it. And so Jesus who is one who teaches with authority, is now in Jerusalem. And there's a little butting of heads going on. And they are seeking to trap Jesus, to basically start a fight, (laughs) in a sense. They want him to say something, do something, that would either get him arrested by the authorities or turn public opinion against him because the people, well, they liked Jesus. And this is their goal through these interactions, the questioning of Jesus' authority. We've looked at uh, the the plain question of authority of how can you do these things? How can you come in on a donkey? How can you cleanse the temple? What gives you the right? And then Jesus speaks this parable in the beginning of Mark 12 and basically says to the religious leaders, you are these wicked tenants who will be destroyed. And God will give the kingdom to another. And now we see these ongoing discussions of authority and things in the life of the everyday Jew, and they're seeking to entrap Jesus. And it comes here to verse 13 through 17. And the question is about taxes. Taxes. We all know the saying, or the two things secured or going to happen in life, death and taxes. Taxes were around in the first century. Uh, By the Roman government, they were put upon their own citizens, but also their vassals, their uh, countries that they oversaw, that they ruled over. It was a very common thing. But here, the issue of taxation is brought up to Jesus. And it's brought up not because they generally care, but they want to trick Jesus, to snare him, to get him into trouble. But as Jesus interacts with these religious leaders and the people that they send to him, this truth comes out. Because the issue of taxation is more than just the transaction of money. It's an issue of authority. What gives you the right to impose a tax upon someone else? And this is our big idea this morning, is that the recognition of Jesus' authority does not remove other authorities under Jesus. Recognition of Jesus' authority. And that's what Mark has been doing. He's been showing Jesus as the suffering servant king, the one who has all the authority of his heavenly father. But as Jesus has authority over all, that does not remove authorities under Jesus. Those authorities that God has placed in the lives of men and women 
for their good and their flourishing. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But recognition of Jesus' authority does not remove other authorities under him. Specifically here when it comes to human government. This test of the religious leaders was to trap Jesus between those who were proponents of Roman rule and those who were Jewish zealots, nationalists who wanted to overthrow Rome. But in the wisdom of Jesus, he demonstrates that it's not either or, but rather both and. Submission to God requires submission to the authorities that he has placed in our lives. And the authorities that he has placed in our lives do not infringe upon his work, but rather are used by him to accomplish it. So let's look here at verses 13 through 17 about how recognizing Jesus' authority does not remove other authorities. We're going to walk through the passage, and then we have two points of application as our outline this morning. So let's do a quick fly over here, verses 13 through 17. Verse 13, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Who is the they? The they are the aforementioned religious leaders. These are the scribes and the the, the Sadducees and the elders of the Sanhedrin, all the way back in verse 27 of Mark chapter 11, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. It's they. They sent to him, the him is Jesus, some of the Pharisees. These are the religious zealots. These are the uber-conservative religious individuals in the nation of Israel. Understand this. A lot of the Pharisees didn't get along with the Sanhedrin because the Sanhedrin was filled with Sadducees. And the Sadducees, well, they rejected anything supernatural. And we'll talk about that next week, actually. So the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and those who were concerned about conserving power sent their enemies, the religious zealots, to Jesus. And they also sent another group. They sent the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? Well, obviously, the name gives it away. They are proponents, fans of Herod. Herod the Great was the first uh, governor established by Rome over the area. And from then, every Roman ruler, in a sense, took that term Herod. If you look at a family tree from Herod the Great, they're all named Herod or Herodias. It's like they don't have any any creativity in naming their children. Um, and there was a faction of Jews that were proponents of Roman rule. They were in favor of Herod overseeing and ruling the nation of Israel. So these were the Herodians. So you have the religious zealots on one side, and you have those who were in favor of Roman rule on the other side. These are opposite ends of the spectrum. Now, in your own mind, you could maybe paint a picture of what that might look like from modern-day American politics of who is who. I'm not going to give you any suggestions. You're smart enough to figure that out. So you have two opposite sides. You have the right, your right, my left, right? The right and the left, the, the opposite ends of the political spectrum. But it's interesting. They come together. What's that maxim? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You have two groups of people that do not get along, except in the instance of seeking to entrap Jesus. 
Because Jesus is putting both sides in their place. Verse 13, they are sent by the religious leaders to do what? To trap him in his talk. This is, uh, it means to ensnare. It, it's, a, it's a hunting illustration or a hunting picture. It literally means to set a trap or to set a snare. Um, to uh, prepare something that's going to capture an animal. They are seeking to ensnare Jesus in his talk. They do not care what he has to say. They just want him to trip up so that they can say, ha, see, and get him in trouble. Verse 14, and they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So they come with flattery and they say, Jesus, you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion which is a true statement. Jesus is true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is God. He can speak no lie. He is true, and he does not care about anyone's opinion. That's another true statement. Jesus speaks the truth, and in speaking the truth, he is not swayed by the opinion of man, but rather that of his heavenly Father. And he says, for you are not swayed by appearances. That's the idea of intimidated or seeking to please somebody. We all could have in our mind of somebody acting a certain way, but then somebody else enters into the discussion and that person's demeanor, their conversation, their attitude changes because of the appearance of someone else. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't care who's there. He's going to act the same way. And they say, but he truly teach the way of God. So they come to Jesus and they use all this flowery language to impress him. And they say, Jesus, you don't care about what other people think of you, which is ironic because they are seeking to flatter Jesus, but Jesus doesn't care about what other people think. So it's like, it's pretty obvious what you're trying to do here. They ask him this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So the question that they ask, is it lawful? Is it lawful? Is it according to the law? Well, according to the law of Moses, we don't really have any uh, reference to paying taxes to outside governments or other nations. Now, there were taxes on the people in the nation of Israel for certain things. We often called them a tithe. It's a tax, in a sense, on certain things, uh, certain produce, certain animals. And why? Well, the benefit of it was to provide for the temple, for the priests, for those who were serving the, the, the tabernacle and the temple. God used those things to provide for those who were doing his work or overseeing uh, some form of the religious worship in the nation of Israel. Is it lawful to pay taxes? So the question isn't, is it lawful to pay taxes? But the question is about to whom you are paying taxes or to who. You can correct me on my grammar later. To Caesar. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? So the question is not paying taxes, but paying taxes to Rome. Caesar is a reference to Caesar Augustus, but became a term to reference any emperor of the Roman uh, Empire, Caesar. 
It just became synonymous with that. The question is, should we pay them or should we not? So the right and the left on the political spectrum are asking Jesus, should we pay taxes to Rome or should we not? Because one side would say, yes, pay taxes to Rome. That would be the Herodians. And in paying taxes to Rome, that would incite the other side to say, oh, you're, you're a Herodian. You sold out. You're not a true Jew. You're a Rome-loving scumbag. But if Jesus says, no, don't pay to Rome, then the zealots are like, see, let's start a revolution. And that might bring some more forces from the Roman government to make sure things stay in line. This was the dilemma. This is what they were seeking to trap Jesus in. Verse 15. But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, you read that and you think, okay, obviously Jesus is God. He's indwelt with the Spirit. But I don't think Jesus needed any supernatural anointing or the fact that he was God to demonstrate the hypocrisy of the people that he was seeing. One, one author said, it would be pretty clear to the normal, common person of their hypocrisy. They didn't really care about the answer. They just wanted to trap Jesus. And Jesus can clearly see it. And he said to them, why do you put me to the test? This word test is the same idea of temptation, of the temptation of Jesus. It's, it's this trying to, very similar to trap, to get catching someone in a lie or, or in, in a difficult situation. Why are you putting me to the test? So what does Jesus do? He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. A denarius was a day's wage for a common laborer. It was the size of about a dime. It was a silver coin. And on one side, it would have the imprint of Caesar Tiberius or Tiberius Caesar, who was the uh, ruling emperor at the time. And it was imprinted with Latin, and um, the phrase basically said, basically, uh, uh, Tiberius Caesar, the, the divine emperor. And on the other side, I believe it was an image of his mother, which is interesting. Um, I, I, I think I, I read that. Um, but one side was uh, the image of Caesar. Very clear. Like, you look at our coins, and you have the presidents on there. Um, we could do a quiz of what presidents on the dime. Anybody know? What's that, Pastor James? FDR. Okay, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He's on, he's on the dime. And so Jesus says, bring me a denarius. And so they do. And I think this is interesting. They are asking the question whether or not it is right to pay taxes to Rome. So then the question is, is it right that we submit ourselves to Roman rule and the Roman tax that they are implementing over us? Because the zealots would say, no, I don't want to. Okay, and if you don't want to submit to that authority, are you willing to submit to the authority of the government in the other ways? And by bringing a denarius, the action itself demonstrates the hypocrisy of the questioners. In producing the coin, they demonstrate that they use it. They are opposed to the tax and the authority of Rome. But by bringing the coin, they demonstrate their submission to it by the use of the currency. Right? I don't like Rome. Rome needs to be done away with. Okay, then don't use their coinage. Oh, you start to see here how things do not line up. 
<coughs> though they speak against Rome's rule, they benefit through the systems and practices established and overseen by the Roman government. Yes, there is unrest. Yes, there are a mil- there's a military presence in Jerusalem. But do you realize that the peace that Rome secured for the middle or Mediterranean world advanced the spread of the gospel? The fancy term is the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Paul could travel anywhere in the Roman world without fear of really being overtaken because there were laws and rules in place that protected Roman citizens. There were roads that were built and those roads still exist today and they are better than some of the ones around here, I bet. (laughs) Rome, as a government, as an empire, was sovereignly used by God and the Christians benefited from it. The spread of the gospel benefited from it. But here they are questioning its role and its authority, but yet they don't realize the inconsistencies in their own life. By producing a coin and showing that they have it and they use it, it demonstrates their recognition of that authority. But Jesus then asks a simple question. Whose face is this and what does it say? Whose name is on it? And they said to him, Caesar's, Roman emperor, clearly demonstrating by whose authority the coin was minted. And then Jesus gives this response, well known to us, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. They marveled at him. This is what Jesus says. That which belongs to Caesar's give to Caesar and that which belongs to God gives to God. And they marveled at him. Jesus answered the question, but didn't really answer the question but in not really answering the question, answer the question. You follow that? One author said this, instead of setting loyalty to God and to Caesar in opposition to each other, the straightforward meaning of Jesus's words is that both may be maintained at the same time. The result of Jesus's teaching again was marvel and amazement. The end of verse 17. This response of Jesus is clear, as I mentioned, but it also leaves us with some questions. Whose authority do you follow? What does it mean to give the things to Caesar that are his and to God that are his? I think there are two points of application and clarification that help us understand this. So as Jesus was confronted by these Herodians and Pharisees and they tried to trap him about paying taxes, Jesus says, give to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, and that which is God, to God. So the issue of authority. What belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? Taking a step back, we can understand Caesar to be human government. The human government that is established throughout the world, throughout the centuries. Many different shapes and forms. But then there is God, the eternal God that is not changed. We are to give him the things that belong to him. So how does this work? Well, our first point of application is this. As we think of submitting to Jesus' authority and the authority under him, we need to understand this first, that the ultimate authority in our lives is God. The ultimate authority is God. Jesus states, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Well, what belongs to God? Everything, right? 
He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Throughout the Old Testament, there is language of God's ownership over all creation. What exists that was not made by God? Nothing. Everything that was made was made through something that he created by him. That is why he's the ultimate authority, being creator of all. Everything is accountable to him. And it's more than even our money. We are to render our lives to God, right? We are to offer ourselves in spiritual worship to him. Render to God the things that are God's. What is God's? Well, everything is. You are God's. Not you are God's, but like you belong to God. You are his possession. And so we are to render ourselves to him. The religious leaders were focused on the minutia of money. But in Christ's statement, he implies we are to render to God our very selves. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Our lives are not our own. As believers, we are bought with a price. That is the blood of Jesus Christ. Our very breath each day, whether a believer or unbeliever, is governed by the mercy and grace of God. We are to render to God what is God's. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service, or the ESV says spiritual worship. We are to give ourselves, our lives, our very being, to God in an act of worship. In a sense, render a tax. What is the tax that we owe God? Our lives. For we are his. The ultimate authority is God, and he is the one ultimately we give an account to. We ultimately answer to God for our activities and our attitudes and the way in which we live our life. The use of the entirety of our lives belongs to God's. Ultimately to him and not to any human government or to any human institution. I'm very thankful for our nation. I'm thankful for its rich history. I'm looking forward to uh, this week. I get to go with my dad to Washington, D.C. on an honor flight. I've never been there. It's going to be a whirlwind tour. And I'm so thankful for the faithful men and women who served. But my ultimate allegiance is to God. He's the end-all, be-all. He's the final one. When it comes down to it, at the very end, I belong to him. The ultimate authority is God. But as God is the ultimate authority, that does not remove authorities under him. And as ultimately I answer to God, I'm thankful for the authority and for the fact that I can not only be a citizen of heaven, but a citizen of the United States. So the ultimate authority is God first. And secondly... That ultimately authority in God leads us, it calls us to submit to, I call it delegated authority. Delegated authority. When you delegate something, you ask somebody to do something for you. So delegated authority in our lives from God, several different spheres. You have human government. Human government is a delegated authority. God gives human governments the right to, in a sense, rule. We'll talk about that here, what that means. He's also given uh, the husband to 
be the head of his wife and the head of the family. That's a delegated authority right there. And there's also authority in the church. You have pastors that lead and teach and oversee the church, but that's, that's a delegated authority because our authority rests under the authority of God. These delegated authorities are good things. They're established by God. And they are established for human flourishing. In the world today, there is so much discussion in the, in the issue of marriage and parenting, of authority, and everything that goes along with that, and breaking down the biblical order of the family. That was not an invention of man. That was not an invention of the patriarchy, whatever you want to say. That was an invention of God. All the way back in Genesis, and we see it patterned and promoted in Scripture. That's how God has designed it. Now, anytime sinful individuals are involved, even sinful people who've been redeemed, that can break down. Delegated authority can be abused. But just because authority can be abused doesn't mean that all authority is bad. And that's important for us to remember. Because as we think of the realm of human governments, there have been some terrible human governments out there. Awful. There have been some decent ones. But really, as you look at the scope of it, there are none that are blameless. Right? There are none that are perfect. But yet God has used them in his sovereign plan. In the Old Testament, we read of God who sovereignly raises and lowers nations, right? Daniel is all about that. The book of Daniel is so amazing in that how God brings up a nation and a king and then he takes it away and brings up another one. And it's all according to his plan. The heart of the king is in the hand of God. And in the New Testament, passages like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, which we read, Make it clear that the attitude and action of a follower of Jesus, what it should be towards human government. God has established human government as agents of justice, of creating order so that we can live a life, uh, a life of peace to, to live our lives. But as I mentioned, like any authority, the authority that God delegates to fallen humans, it can be abused. It can, can grow outside of its bounds. And in these cases, This is where it's important that we understand that as a follower of Jesus, our ultimate authority is not to any delegated authority, but ultimately to God's authority. There may be times when a human government says you can't do that. And like the apostles, we must say we must obey God rather than men. Families, there may be times a father or a husband is abusive and sinful and harmful And there is a proper course that God has established through human government of seeing that justice is dealt out. Even in our church, a pastor may be abusive and demeaning and not a good shepherd. And God has established in his sovereignty the ability of a congregation to come and say, okay, you need to go. You need to check your heart. So we do not blindly submit to delegated authority in our lives, but we submit to it as God 
sovereignly uses it. And there may be times that we need to go outside that to the ultimate authority, to God, or to another authority that he has placed in our lives. We must ultimately obey God, but that also calls us to obey the authorities that he has delegated in our lives. And there are exceptions, as I already mentioned. Pharaoh's command to kill all the newborn babies and the Hebrew midwives, no, they feared God and they didn't. The refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow before Nebuchadnezzar, and they didn't. Daniel's defiance of the ban on praying to other gods. The apostles' unwillingness to stop preaching the gospel. But we must be careful that we do not confuse a direct command to sin, like bowing to an idol, versus conflicting preferences and political philosophy. Because sometimes we do that. We look at a contrary political philosophy in our lives and we think, we must obey God rather than men. No, we need to check our hearts. The situation of the believers in the first century was difficult and we read what Peter told them to do. One author said this, Jesus looked on the taxes as citizens' debt to the government in return for the services performed. Today, those services would include, among other things, fire and police protection, national defense, the salaries of the officials who manage the affairs of state, special programs for the poor and underprivileged, etc. The individual Christian citizen might not agree with all the way all of his tax money is used. And he can express himself with his voice and his vote. But he must accept the fact that God has established human government for our good. Even if we cannot respect the people in office, we must respect the office. We must submit to God, living our lives as spiritual worship, as a tax, in a sense, to him, rendering it to him. And he is the ultimate authority, but that does not remove delegated authority through human government that God has established for human flourishing. And though we may not agree with everything, and when times it comes and they call us to do something sinful, we must not submit to that. But we need to understand and respect the office that God has established. What is needed is a submissive heart to God, a trust in his plan, which includes delegated authority. And here Jesus, as they confront him, which one is it? He says, oh, you are immature in your thinking. It is both. Render your life to God. But in rendering your life to God, we understand there's delegated authority that you are called to submit to. What is needed is a submissive heart. Authority can be abused. We understand that. But that does not mean all authority is wrong. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And we do that understanding that all authority will give an answer to God. Kingdoms rise, they fall. But the kingdom of God will last forever. So may we recognize Jesus' authority in our life and may we understand that that does not remove other authorities under Jesus, but rather it calls us to live in a way that we reflect our relationship with Jesus towards those authorities. God is ultimately overall, and that calls us to submit to the authorities that he has established in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, and Lord, this topic, this idea of authority and delegated authority and Lord, how Jesus demonstrates wisdom, how we are called to submit 
to you. And in submitting to you, we recognize other authorities in our lives, and you call us to submit to them as so far as they don't call us to sin, as they are not harmful or hurtful. Lord, that they are uh, being used by you. Lord, thank you for Jesus who submitted himself to your plan, who died on the cross for us. Lord, Lord, may we have that same humility and willingness to serve as he did. And may we ultimately render our lives as spiritual worship, as reasonable service because of the mercies you have shown us in Christ. We love you. Pray all this in your son's name. Amen.